Good morning, family. It's good to see you. First of all, Rob, we welcome you in the name of Christ uh, to the body here. You have never left our or my heart, and you know that. And so glad to have you formally welcome back in. Please, as you see your wife this week, give her a big holy kiss for us. All right. Also, uh, I did notice some people came in a little bit late just to make sure that we communicate. First of all, if you're visiting with us, we're very, very glad to have you here with us and delighted that you've chosen to come on a Sunday to spend time in the Word and in prayer and singing together. And if you are visiting and you didn't hear uh, the, the announcements at the beginning, we will not be in this place next week. Two weeks we will be, Lord willing. Uh, but next week we will be in an alternate location and the nine and the 10 o'clock will shift one half hour. So if that's a visual that will help you to remember, it won't be nine and 10, it'll be 9.30 and 10.30, or I guess it should go all the way down, something like that. Um, but the information is in the bulletin, it's on our website. So we really, if you come again, we want to make sure that you are the same place that we are. Uh, if not, you can just carry on here without us, I guess, but you'll have to do outside. Um, but we would love to have you come and visit with us. And as Ben mentioned, this has been over a year-long conversation that we've been having with the leadership and now the, the uh, merger team of Lincoya Hills Baptist Church about a potential merger. And as Ben also emphasized, uh, no final decision has been made from either church or either leadership. And so that is a dialogue uh, going on uh, presently. All right, well, with that out of the way, um, please turn with me in your Bibles to First Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll begin this morning looking at verse 16 down through chapter 5, uh, down through verse 10. And this text I am summarizing by the title, The Great Divide. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 16. Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the Lord, we are away from, or home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we should rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Lord, we pray again that you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit to consider, meditate, think, apply these words from the Apostle to a church that had had much trouble with him, and yet he would write such glorious, instructive words for us. Please give us help as we, 2,000 years later, study somebody else's mail and help us to understand how it can help and encourage and give us hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, if you haven't come to realize this yet, you will soon. And that is that one of the unchangeable realities of life is pain, is a peeking out of your mental and physical fitness. Eventually, not only a peeking out and perhaps plateauing, but a beginning of decline where eyesight decreases, hearing decreases. Mobility and ambulatory skill begin to decrease until you start falling and breaking things and wind up in the hospital and rehab. Hearts begin to fail. Things begin to happen eventually, all of that leading for most of us to death. Those are realities, and I hate to be a bummer this morning, but that is just the reality of life. And we as a human race have been doing this for quite a while. And last time we checked, with one exception, um, or maybe two, this is inevitable for us, that we will peak and decline and death will come. This is a 100% rate for if you have been born, you will die. So somehow death still seems to surprise us when somebody says, oh, it was just too soon. I mean, have you heard very many people say, no, it was just the right time. <laughs> so this is an unchangeable reality, and the human race has tried to adapt to this for many years through a number of techniques or approaches or ways of thinking. There is the attempt to just deny it. It's just like, don't bother me. Don't, I'm not going to listen to it as long as I'm in good shape. I don't need to pay attention to anybody else. It's not coming for me. I can, I can just deny it. I can minimize it and say, well, other people haven't taken care of themselves well enough, and I'm going to take better care of myself so I won't decline as quickly or die as early. Or with modern science and medicine and fitness crazes and all the rest, we, we're, we're going to control this. We're going to control it. We are going to have power over it. We are going to exercise dominion over it. And, and it, whether it's denial or minimization or control, these are all responses to the reality that this is coming in like a force that will not be stopped. Fifty years from now, most of us will not be here. Not that, not that far off, I'm 54. In my lifetime, less than my lifetime, we will be in a box or something, <laughs> but we won't be here. 
People will have already begun to forget the sound of our voices unless they hear us on recording. Their memories of us will begin to be forged and shaped, not merely by reality, but by the loss of memory and the forging of either good or bad memories. So no matter how we try to resist this, minimize it, deny it, control it, it is coming for all of us. And that is a reality that we as Christians need to face fully. But how do we face this without devastation? How do we face this in the reality that I will die, my children will die, my grandchildren will die, and you all will die, and I will die, and how do we deal with this? In the end, all of our attempts, even denials, will be overcome by the reality that the wages of sin is death. That we have eaten the fruit and we already have the death sentence on us and it is coming for us and the gates of death will one day swallow us. The cords will come up from their gravy tomb and they will wrap themselves around us and pull us either very quickly or very slowly and the chasm will close over us for every one of us. So in the end, the biblical idea is don't deny it, don't minimize it, don't try to control it, face it, but face it with the hope of the gospel. Rather than this leading us to despair, hopelessness, worry, and fear, embrace it and face it biblically. That's what God calls us to do. As followers of Jesus, we believe that there is a great divide between this life and the life to come, this great divide, and that decay and death are not the end. And most of us will cling to this world as if this is really all that we have. And the Bible calls us, and this passage this morning calls us to think differently. The end is not the end, but in the words of Narnia, it is but uh, of Lewis in Narnia, it is but the first chapter of a never-ending story. That's what death is for the believer. And so, as Paul writes this church that he's having all kinds of problems with, and we're reading, as I mentioned in my in my uh, in my prayer, my introduction, we're reading somebody else's mail, but we are reading it for our benefit. We are reading it so that we might know how to think. And in the measure, in the middle of this truth bomb that he is giving to them to defend his own ministry, we have gems from which to glean this morning. And so let's look together at, at, at three categories of what he gives us this, in this great divide of the, the now and the not yet, this great divide that death itself separates. We're going to see three contrasts. And the first is verse uh, chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Affliction versus glory. Affliction versus glory. Paul, as we know, as we've been going through the letter, has suffered deeply. He has suffered physically more than probably, arguably, any of us will ever suffer in this life. He has been betrayed more deeply than most of us will ever be betrayed. He has been physically tormented and beaten and tortured and left for dead and hungered in arguably ways that None of us in the room will ever face. Could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Or I hope I'm not wrong. But 
Paul has suffered deeply for the gospel. So he's gone beyond aches and pains and difficulties and broken hips and the common things that happen to us, cancers and other things that can take away our life. He has voluntarily put himself into a place where suffering has been brought into his life far beyond what most of us, all of us, arguably will experience. And so he's not here speaking, as C.S. Lewis wrote his first book, The Problem of Pain, from a mere, merely theoretical, just, just finished up a book this week called Reason and Imagination, which traces out C.S. Lewis's early conversion of how how highly rational and how his early books like The Problem of Pain and Mere Christianity and others were highly philosophical and cognitive. And, you know, he, he really had a confidence in, in reason and enlightenment thinking. And, you know, if you could rationally argue somebody into position, that's what you needed for conversion. But this author, I think, rightly traces out that he realized that there's, there were more than just thinking beings, we're feeling beings that we're emotive beings, that we're story-driven beings, and that emerges in him in telling stories. And he never leaves the rational behind, but it's the rational as informed and enlightened by thinking and imagination and stories. And so what we have here is a need to think, not just rationally and argumentatively, but here Paul has something more than just truth that's driving him. He's got his human experience. And so he says here, we do not lose heart. With all of his beatings, all of his betrayals, churches that are rebelling against him, over, uh, undermining his authority. Somehow Paul has himself empowered to not lose heart. And that's one of the greatest difficulties that we face, that when we face disappointments and we face things that we can't control and we face things that people don't do what we know they ought to do because they're doing something stupid and we want to rescue them. Whether it's our kids or our spouse or somebody that we know, somebody that we love, a neighbor, it's so easily to get disheartened and with that, the loss of the heart, there's a loss of motive. There's a, a loss of hope. There's a loss of Believing that they're in, in the words of Sam, that there's still something good in this world worth fighting for. And as we get older, it doesn't get any easier. Because for every success that we see, we see 10 failures. For every encouragement and thing that is good, we see 10 things that are difficult. For every story in the news that's a feel-good, happy story about somebody who's rescued from a fire... We hear a story about hundreds of people dying from a tsunami. And so it's, it's in this world, it's never like, if I can just accumulate enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff, and if I can do that and accumulate it, then, then, then good wins. It's like, that's not going to happen. That our awareness and keenness and ability to feel the evil almost always overpowers our ability to feel the good in and of itself. And so, Paul, how in the world can you not lose heart? I mean, if he's telling the truth, I mean, if he's a big fat liar, then let's just shut our Bibles and go listen to somebody else. But he can say through all of this suffering, we do not lose heart. Paul, tell us, tell us how. How in the world? Anybody 
You don't have to raise your hand. Feeling like, have you had a week, a couple of weeks, a month? 2020 to 2022, or maybe the last decade or whenever, or yesterday, or that call that you got, or that email that you just like, I've lost heart. I've, I've, I've got, I've got, I just have very little reason to go on. I have very real, little reason to have any hope that anything good is going to come of this. I have very little reason to, to, to okay, I'm just going to hunker down and wait till death. And I guess that's, that's the best I can do. And try not set myself on fire in the process. I don't know. What else am I going to do? Well, Paul gives us an example of someone or something better than that. And that is to not lose heart, but to still have heart. Paul, okay, I'm going to delay it no longer. What is it, Paul? Well, it's this great divide of affliction versus glory. This is what he says. Though the outer self is wasting away. You see, Paul's not taken, he has not taken up Stoic philosophy. Stoic philosophy essentially said this, that our suffering is an illusion. And all of this difficulty is an illusion. And if we can just overcome it by not groaning and learning to adapt in physiologically and psychologically, adapting ourselves to accepting everything as a good thing, and that there's really no difference between pain and pleasure, if we can just stoically figure that out, then we can overcome and we can be victorious. And, and Paul is no stoic in that way. Paul looks at his body and whatever kind of mirror he may have had, he looks at the scars he reads the letters, he hears the things, and he's like, the outer self is wasting away. So he doesn't deny it. So for, part of the first thing that we do as Christians is not say, well, you know what? Health, wealth, and prosperity is yours, and you can die an old man or old, old woman just like Moses in the, in the strength and your youthfulness, and you don't have to get sick, and you don't have to get cancer, and if you just name it and claim it, you will overcome it, and you will go out over the finish line, running as fast as you did when you were 30. Paul's like, that, that's just stupid. That's just not true. The outer self, because of the curse, God has built into the system that the outer person is wasting away. And your brain will begin to harden and your memory will get worse. Sorry, if I hope that this isn't like a totally surprise. All the little kids are like, well, well, this is kind of a bummer. But it's true. And it's something to prepare for. The outer self is wasting away. But Paul says, what is the key to not losing heart? It's not the denying of the outward wasting away, but it's this. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the only way to have hope. It's the only way not to lose heart. It's the only way to face the gates and cords of death with hope. Our inner self. Here Paul is contrasting the physical, material, external being of who we are as human beings with this thing he calls the inner self. We could call it the soul, the spirit, the inner man, the inner, inner self. Paul said there's something going on that while the outside is growing weaker day by day by day, so it's not like already done, it, it is incrementally increasing. And things that happen incrementally most often aren't recognizable and noticeable. They, they just kind of sneak up on you. They just keep happening over time. 
And Paul says, here's what's going on for him. Our, our inner being is renewed day by day. And there's, there's, as, as the outer man is wasting away, there's this inner strength that is growing to not lose heart. And again, we say, man, I, wa- I want that. I want that. So if I lose my eyesight, if I'm losing my mind, if I, I, if I can't remember things and I, I, I can't, you know, and I get to the point that I can't, I can't do pull-ups anymore and I can't do bench presses and I can't run around the block and I can't do that and I, I am stuck in a chair that I can still be renewed every day. If I have a heart attack and wind up an invalid in the hospital, I can still be renewed day by day. If my wife goes before me, if my friends go before me, if I'm sitting in a nursing home alone and afraid, I can still be renewed day by day. How is that, Paul? How is it? Here's what he says. This is how that works. This is the internal mechanism of how hope and not losing heart is built. And it's, by the way, it's not automatic. It just doesn't happen. You're a Christian, you get it. Now, this is something we're going to see has to be worked and thought about. And then this is what he says. This light momentary affliction. And, and again, we want to say, uh, Paul, I mean, some of us would say that about our life in general. I, I can say I've been in generally good health and things have been fine and my afflictions and my sufferings have in my lifetime been relatively insignificant. I had a couple of root canals that were really miserable. But my affliction in the big scheme of things has been literally light momentary affliction. But now we're talking about Paul. I didn't write this. This is in Stephen's theology. This is Paul. Paul looks at himself and all the things that we've seen over the past several weeks. He's like, you know what this is? This is light Light? Momentary. But, but see, it's not light in how it feels. We're going to see it's light in comparison to something else. You say, how, how in the world, with all the suffering and all the difficulty, how can, how can we so degrade and demean people to say, what you have is light affliction, or what I have is light affliction? That just sounds, just sounds insulting. It seems to deny the reality of suffering. But Paul is not saying light in relation to other people's suffering or, or his own life. It's light in comparison to something else, and we'll see what that is. But he says it's light, it's momentary, but it is affliction. It is difficulty. But here's what's happening is while there is this light momentary affliction, it's doing something. And it's doing something that cannot be seen right now and cannot be experienced right now. So there's a payoff at the end. There's something that happens later. It's not like this affliction is doing something in me that I can now feel and see. But rather, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us something up ahead that, that is to come. And it's on the other side of death. It's on the other side of the great divide. It's preparing for us. It's working. Something that is stored up over here. And what is it? It's an eternal weight. And that's in contrast to the lightness and the weight. These are the two things that are contrasted. It is affliction, but it's affliction that doesn't last forever. It is affliction, but it's light in comparison to this weight, and it's a weight of glory. And C.S. Lewis has a, a, a an essay or a, um, 
SAA presentation he's done in the book, The Weight of Glories, where it's collected, where he wonderfully talks about this imagery and what, what Paul is doing here. But there's something, this thing called glory, which is one of those ambiguity words. It's just like, what does it mean to glory or glorify something? And then you say, well, everybody knows what that means until you try to explain what it means. And then it becomes very ambiguous and hard to describe. We tried to do that right community group a couple of weeks ago when we it's like, well, what is glory and what does it mean to glorify God? It's like, oh, yeah, uh, well, something like this and something like this. And so you put it all together, it's something like this. And whatever it is, it's a weight that in comparison, and Paul talks about this in Romans 8 as well, that in comparison the two, that the things that are the afflictions of the world are so light, they're not even worthy to be compared with the things that are to come. And that is the secret to the Christian life, if you will. It's not easy. But that's the thing that helps him to not lose hope because what I'm suffering and what I'm dealing with now and what I begin to lose over time and the wreckage that I see in this world that in comparison for the eternal weight of glory which is to come is not worthy to be compared. And he said that this is preparing for us beyond all comparison. It's, it's like so out of the category that you put them on the scale and compare to the eternal weight of glory like the suffering in the end, not now, but in the end, will not even register on the scale. Like, what does that weigh? It, weigh? it weighs nothing. Can you imagine the sufferings of this world actually being able to experience that they weigh nothing in eternity? Well, we just don't experience that here. Even, even those of us, those of you who have suffered in some way, I mean, it still has like a, a residual weightiness. If you've suffered something great, I mean, you, the memory has a weightiness to it and, and, the, and the degree of pain, you don't experience the same, but it's still, or the suffering over the losing of somebody or the suffering over the loss of, of somebody that you care for or of a spouse or of a child. It's like, what, what in the world are we talking about out here that can make that not even register on my scale of affliction? And he says it's beyond all comparison. That, that's, that's what he says. And so we're talking about something, as we will see, that is supernatural. That is unbelievable. That is unseeable in this life. And unable to be experienced. So, sounds, like, sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? It does. Let's see. Let's follow him further. Here's how it is. What you are doing is looking at something you can't see. Hey, I want everybody right now, we're going to have a little social experiment. I want you all to look right now at something you can't see. As soon as you do, what happens? Well, I see it. It's impossible for you to look physically at something to see something you can't see. And that's exactly what the Christian life is is it's the essence of it can you can you see god in his essential glory no you can see him in his radiant glory the effulgence of his glory the expect the, the the revelation of his glory you can see it 
I hate to use it because philosophically it's so loaded, but emanations of his glory. I mean, you can, you can see through his creation, his handiwork, you can see the glory of God. Of course, Psalm 19. But you can't see God. But we believe. We look at the things, we look not at the things that are seen. And so here, here's what Paul is asking us to do. That cancer, that broken marriage, that suffering, that loss of cognitive ability, that, that reality of aging of that person that I see in the mirror, the reality of those gray hairs, the, the reality at that funeral with the closed casket, that reality of the loss of parent. That the re, here's what I want you to do is everything that you see, I don't want you to look at. Because that's not reality in some way. But to not lose hope, I want you to stop looking at what you see and I want you to start looking at what you can't see. You see, you see, this is, this is way more than the acceptance of a set of doctrines in Christianity. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, who is born of a woman. It's, it's more than just a set of beliefs. It's doing the impossible. It is to say that what is temporal is not what is going to last. That death itself will lose its sting. Death itself will not prevail. Cancer will not prevail. Brokenness of relationships is not going to win in the end. Christ wins. But what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Paul's apologetic is, can you see it? Well, yeah, I see it. Well, stop looking at it and look at what you can't see. You say, that's just bizarre. <laughs> that's faith. It is love for an unseen Christ. It is longing for an unseen new heavens and new earth. It is the belief in a resurrection that we have never experienced it is the belief in things being all made new when we have never experienced it in this life. It is the belief that God will raise all humanity from the dead when we've not even seen one person raised from the dead. So it's not just a multiple. It's not like faith is here's something that you see and just imagine that much bigger. It's like imagine things that you cannot see and it's that. And it's the opposite of everything you have seen. Something like that. And he says, because he's fixed his mind. And that's the thing. When you have nothing left. I think Paul, through his suffering and through his difficulties, it was like, he didn't have anything to look at. You know, we still have our, you know, we still got a little money, money or maybe our 401k. Our kids are still alive. We've got this. We've got, well, my marriage is still hanging. To, we've, we've still got things to look at. And the things that we look at are still the things that we trust in. But taking our eyes off of them preemptively and setting them on the things that we cannot see is the very way we live by faith. Why is it? Because the things that are seen are temporal, are transient. 
There's nothing that feels to us more real than our own physical life, and yet it's transient. It is passing. It is the day is going to come where you, my friend, your heart will stop. And never in this world will, will it beat again. Your brain waves will stop sending. The electrical impulses in your body will dim and then go out. And, and that's transience. That is passing. And the sooner we deal with it and not deny it or minimize it or can try to control it, the more we will live in the nature of reality in the world that God has created. But here's what he says. The things that you cannot see, the things that you are to look at, the things that you are to believe and live by, not the things that I see, but the things that I unseen, that are unseen, those are the things that will last forever. Like God, like the new heavens and new earth, like the resurrection from the dead, like the making of all things new in Christ and all things being reconciled in him in heaven on earth. So here's the thing is we live totally on this side of the, the, of the great divide. All that we see, all that we feel, all that we experience. And faith is telling us to live as if we are going over the great divide into this whole other thing that we've never seen or experienced, but God tells us about. So that's the first contrast. In the few minutes that remain, I'm going to pick up the speed here quite a bit. You get, you get the gist of where we are. He makes two other contrasts. And it's basically the application of this principle. A tent versus a building. So Paul is talking about his physical suffering. Remember, they're undermining him. They're saying, how can you be a true apostle when you're suffering in this way? But he contrasts this tent versus building. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home, what you have is a tent. And you know, most of us, we buy tents with the recognition one day we're going to have to buy another one. If you use it anyway, you know, you go camping and then the, the, the seams tear or the, the waterproofing wears out in it or the sun eventually gets to it where it doesn't protect you in the way it should. And you, you buy a tent knowing I'm probably not going to live in this for the rest of my days. It's, it's a temporary thing. And for them, Tents meant something that was not only temporary, things that had to be fixed, but also meant transience. It means movement. It means you don't have a home yet. And so we live in this tent that is our earthly home, which reminds us like this, this, this world as it is and where I live is just not home. I'm not at home, even when I'm in my little study and I love my study and I'm there with my family and I've got little Ellie in my lap and Kimberly comes up to visit me. and I'm there and everything in me just feels safe and secure and restful and happy. And I look around and I see the things in my study and just like, I can't believe I get to experience this. And everything that in me cries out, this is home One of these days, maybe some of you in this room, after my funeral, or after Kimberly's funeral, we'll go up to the study and you'll have some discussions about where those books are going to go and where the little items go. But in the end, there's going to be a whole trailer full of stuff, Stephen's junk, that nobody wants. And you're going to take it to Goodwill, which I'm okay with. Just burn my journals first. Don't read them, just burn them. <laughs> then you can have at everything else you want. If there's anything there of value. 
that place to me, which I call my sanctuary, is the place I feel closest to God and family and home there at the Gant Gebel Show. It's all temporary. It's a tent. This body is a tent. He says, if our earthly home is destroyed, speaking of the, just the physical reality of who we are, we have a building. There's the contrast that all of this world and everything we experience is a tent, but there's a building that's that conveys permanence. Now, it doesn't for us, right? We see buildings go up, buildings go down, construction, cranes and implosions and, and all that. You know, we see buildings come and go. But for them in the ancient mind, a building meant permanence. Like, this is going to be here for generations to come. And it's a biblical symbol to say, we've got something compared to this body and this life is a building and it's a building from God, a house not made with hands. Every house we've ever seen has been made by hands. There's another house, a building made by the hands of God, and it is eternal in the heavens. Now, a little bit of theology talk here, nerd talk. Let's see if I can do this in a, in a brief fashion. What, one of the problems that, that evangelicalism has had in the past hundred years or so, is, is a, I think, a truncated view of what happens after death. So that for years, the, the hope and the desire is like, I just want to get out of this world, this material world, and I want to go to heaven and be with God forever. Now, that's not, that's not totally false, but it's truncated. Because the biblical doctrine is that after we die, go be with the Lord. The time is coming when Jesus will return. He will make all things new. He will make a new heavens and a new earth. We will be resurrected physically from the dead. We will put, be put back on the earth for worship and service of God forever. It's a restoration and betterment of what we had in the original creation. And that's been recovered or is being recovered quite a bit. Like my goal is not to go to heaven. My goal is to be with God in the new heavens and new earth. Like that's, that's the last chapter that opens up into all the other chapters. But, but there was with, it has been within evangelicalism, like, oh, I just, I want to go home. And, and this is the passage primarily that's used to talk about that. So much so that you will hear people talk about when I die, I will get my new body. Okay, so no, wait, wait, what, what, and what kind of body is that? Well, it's a, it's a body not made with hands. Is it a material or immaterial body? Well, it was like a body, like a body body. So then what you have is a strange amalgam of I die, my physical body goes into the ground, I go to heaven, and I get like up there there's hanging for me another, you know, it's like a you know, body suit from the Avengers or something. It makes me look muscular or something like that. And, you know, there it is hanging, you know, and I pull it off the rack and I put it on. It's like now I'm re but then when the resurrection happens, do, do, does that body then get in the resurrection body and then I have a new body? And is that like a, a spiritual body that's non-material and this one's it? So, so it becomes confusing really quickly. But you can hear from this, the idea is when I die and I go to be with Jesus, I will have a new body. It's like the, the full picture is resurrection from the dead is this body. And that's why we read 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul talks extensively about the body that is transformed at the resurrection and the coming of Jesus. 
So this has been so problematic for some commentators, they say that actually Paul has evolved in his theology, that originally Paul was thinking that he would live to the parousia of the coming of Jesus, and we would get all, all get new bodies, and now he's shifted and thinking, you know what, I'm probably not going to make it <laughs> till, till Jesus comes. This seems to be extended, and therefore, when I die, and he's developed a theology of a new body in heaven in the in the in-between period. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Here's, here's what I think he's saying. This eternal, this body made in the heavens, we think of heavens as like a, a place, a, a, a geographic place in, in space and time, something like that. But as we delve into it, heaven really isn't a spatial place. Like, where is it? You know, it's two moons past Jupiter. That's where heaven is. So we've come to realize that heavens is a real realm, but it probably doesn't seem to be a material, physical realm that takes place somewhere on the edge of the Andromeda universe or somewhere. Like, you can't go far enough to actually get where God is because God is outside of space and time in his essential being. So what I think Paul is saying here is that the body he's looking forward or forward to in this passage is of supernatural and heavenly heaven as its source, heaven as its power, heaven and, and eternity as what will sustain it forever, something like that. So he's talking about a heavenly body and a body that is sustained by the heavenlies. And the heavenlies is the place where God dwells and where his people dwell with him. So. Yes, it's complicated. That may or may not be convincing, but that's what I think he's doing here, not giving us an interim body when we go to be with Jesus. So we have a building from God. And so what he's actually talking about, I think, here is fusing 1 Corinthians 15 together with this passage is he's actually referring eventually to the resurrection body. He is referring to being with God in the resurrection body. And that resurrection body is powered by the heavenlies, right? So I don't know if that's convincing or not. Chew through it. If you figure it out, let me know. I'll I'll redact my sermon and try to figure out where to go from here. But that's as best as I can figure what's going. All right. In this tent, we groan. Again, something the Stoics would never have done. In this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And more than one commentator said, this is the groaning of a woman in childbirth. This is the groaning of a woman. It's the same image that he uses over in Romans 8. It's a groaning. So there's suffering. There's broken marriages. There's this. There's eating disorders. There's troubles. There's all of this stuff. And it causes me to groan. But it's a groan to long for the birth of something new. And that's the return of Christ in the new heavens and new earth. We we have this groaning. We long. As long as we're in this tent, we're longing for our heaven sourced dwelling to get out of this body. It's not a longing for suicide and to get out of this body like the ancient Platonists believed that this was the prison house of the soul. The problem is the body is is not a prison, but it's a fallen dwelling place that we're going to be put back into once it has been perfected. All right, quickly, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So he is, he's pushing against Greek philosophy here and saying, we don't want to get out of the body and just go be heavenly in some ideal realm. 
He's like, we don't that we 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 are so there's something wrong with us not having a body. When I die, or when we see a funeral, we know that that person, their spirit, their soul is gone, and the body's there. That's their wardrobe, which they will reclothe themselves in glorified ways. But they're essentially naked in some way that God had not designed for us. I think that's what Paul is referring to. While we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, get out of this body, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Okay, a lot here. I'm already past my time, but you're getting the gist of this. This is worthy of your meditation, of your thought, and of your prayers. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is where we need the Holy Spirit to live by faith, walk by faith, and not by sight. Finally, verses 6 through 10, absent versus present. Let me just go through these quickly. So, because of these things that we believe, we're always of good courage. If we, if we put into the hopper of our heart anything other than this, that hopper, you know, a hopper is something that holds something that feeds something else like seed or paintballs, the little thing up there that feeds into the paintball gun is a hopper. And the problem is we put into our hopper, like our 401k, the success of our children, the career of our, of, of our spouse or of ourselves. We put all kinds of things in the hopper to feed the hope of the heart, which are inadequate, But Paul says, because of the great divide and what's on the other side, because his hopper is full of the resurrection and the eternal dwelling and being with Christ, because of this, we are always of good courage. And we should always fall back and ask ourselves, if I'm feeling discouraged, if I'm feeling a lack of good courage, if I have lost heart, let me check my hopper. Let me see what's going in there and see if the right thing is in there. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are looking at the things that are unseen. We are walking by faith. We are doing the impossible, which is why we both need and have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home with him or away, or it could be the other way around, home here in the body, away to be with the Lord. What, whatever it is, because that day is coming, what I do in the here and now, and the hope and courage by which I live, because this is coming, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Not because of the things I see, but the things I, I cannot see. Then he ends with this verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's where all of this is going to be done. And all the things will be sorted out. And all things will be made new. And resurrection bodies will take place. And the things that are unseen will come to be seen in this material world. In the new heavens and new earth. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Well, God doesn't care about how I live. He just cares about what I believe. No. He cares enough that we will stand in judgment to receive, whether good or evil, the things that we have done in our body. What we do in our body is essential to what will happen in the day of judgment before Christ. All right, very quickly. Application. The great divide. Our hope 
is not here now, but what is to come. And what we have to do is fight for faith every day. That's why we need to read our scriptures. That's why we need to pray. That's why we need to encourage one another in the truth of the gospel. And particularly the truth of the gospel, not only that Jesus died for my sins, but he is coming again. The great divide says this, this all feels really yucky. Yep, it does. Don't have to deny it. Things are hard. Yes, they are. Life is full of trials. Yes, it is. This makes me want to lose hope. You are right. Why doesn't it? Because I've set my sight on the things that I cannot see. Rather than the things that are unseen. And the more typically that I am deflated and brought down and hopeless and despairing is because I am looking at the things that I can see. And, and, and I mean, who's to blame us in one way? I mean, it's what I see. <laughs> it's, it's what we experience. It's what we know. But the Spirit taps us on the shoulder and says, don't look there. Look over here. It's not escapism. It's remembering the reality of where all of this is headed. And we know it because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Our physical decline and death is a fact of fallen nature, but our spiritual renewal by which we can get hope and be renewed in the inner man and not lose heart, this work of faith is a work of God's spirit. And at the same time, we are called to foster it, to feed it, to remember it, to call one another to it and to do what we do day by day. Hard times, disappointment, and loss either have come, is, or, or, or is present, or is coming. That is the reality, and no amount of spirituality and no amount of good hard work will ever change that on the big scale. It's just not. We are not going to change the world, but Christ will. We will be salt and light. And we can change and impact the world very limited that is around us by doing good. But we will not change the world. Sorry, post-millennialists. But Christ will. But Christ will. Until then, we groan. Until then, we live in this tent. The reality is for every good thing that you and I will attempt, there are many more things for every child rescued from the horror of sex trafficking. We know there are many others who have not been. Doesn't mean we give up. For every person liberated, for every person cured from cancer, for which we thank God, there will be hundreds who are not. And that, that's not despairing. That's not hopeless. It's fact because we live in a sin-cursed world that God himself has put the curse on. And the wages of sin is death. And no human ingenuity or human technology will upturn that until Jesus comes again. This doesn't have to diminish our desires and efforts to push against what is decaying or difficult. But the harder we push for good, the harder the evil is going to push back. And if we don't have this perspective, we will lose heart. 
We'll start putting our confidence on what I can do and how much this organization can do and what the church can do and what this group of people and what this kind of teaching and what impact we're having on the city. Which are good things. But the moment we begin to put in our hopper hope in those things which we see, we are setting us ourselves up for a devastating disappointment. But it doesn't mean we don't stop because it's the right thing to do, because it glorifies God, because it's compassionate toward people, because, yes, we are sinking in the boat and we are going to keep pedaling until the boat is sunk. Why? Because it's the right thing to do and it's working in that eternal weight of glory. So when the boat sinks, all is not lost. All the efforts done will be brought to bear at the coming of Jesus. We live by, not by sight, but by faith. Now, I've been speaking to us as Christians. For those of you who are not Christians, there's something on the other side of this great divide that says the afflictions of this world are not worthy to be compared to to the terror and affliction that is to come. That's the biblical portrait of it. It's not that things get better for you. It's that things get infinitely worse. You say, that's a scare tactic. Well, if it's true and it scares you into fleeing to the one who is good and the one is holy and the one who is loved, then so be it. For me to say, get into this container because it's fireproof, because there's a fire out here that's burning the woods down, and if you don't get in there, you will die. Well, you're just trying to scare me. You're using a scare tactic. That's so mean for you to do that. If it's true, it's not mean to say, get out of the path of the wrath and fire of God and get into his son, Jesus, so you can be safe and protected forever. And if that's a scare tactic, then so be it. But you know, there are things in this world we should be scared of. And God is one of them. And the greatest of them. And there are things to love in this world. And God is one of them. And God is the greatest of them. Flee to Christ. Turn to him. Let's pray. So Lord, we ask your blessings on your word as Paul has challenged us to... Feed our faith not on the news, not on social media, not on even the things that we experience and know from around us, but to feed our faith on your promises and especially those promises as they're wrapped up in Jesus. So please give us help, rescue us from ourselves and prepare for us through our struggles without losing courage, without losing hope, without losing heart, the eternal weight of glory to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.